Well, good morning, you guys. It's so great to be back with all of you. I haven't met you before. So my name is Gary Burge. I'm kind of on a regular routine coming back through here. I teach at Calvin Seminary, and uh, it's just always something I just enjoy so much. And I'm like Torin. I think the baptisms are so amazing. That was just so cool. Was that great or what? Yeah, that was great. I was a little disappointed, though. I think last time I saw a baptism here, Torin really got into it, and there was a wave that you could have surfed that came out of the side of that tub. You know, so it was kind of, I was so hoping to see if we kind of hit this area up here. I'm very impressed that you guys are taking on this whole subject of the history of the Bible, where it comes from. So I, I, one thing I've learned about TLC is that you are just a really nerdy bunch. Just saying. And so I have gotten the assignment to go total nerd today. So I'm going to be on autopilot as if I were in a classroom someplace. Yep, there it is. Look at all those. I expect those read by next week. <clears throat> but it's really rare. It's an exceptional church that ever addresses these issues. But I know from long experience in the classroom that there are students everywhere that have these questions. There are people in the church who just wonder, where in the world did this Bible come from? Um, just this past week, I had the greatest experience at uh, Calvin University. It's just across the street from us. And uh, I got an email from a student uh, who found me on the web. Um, and so she said, would you be willing to talk to me about some big questions that I have? And I said, well, sure, why not? So lunch this past week, right, with this amazing Calvin student, senior. And uh, so she had all of these really tough questions. And uh, so really great. I loved it. And uh, then, you know, I said, well, okay, so have you, are you going to church somewhere? You never can assume that. And she said, well, I've been looking for a church where they actually raise the tough questions and where they answer them, frankly. And I said, well, where have you been? And she lists all these churches, typical college student, right? Just checking out churches. She burns through this whole list of churches. I'd, I'd love to name them for you, but I can't do that. <laughs> anyway, so anyway, wow. I said, well, have you found any place that makes sense to you, you know, where this kind of thing satisfies your head and your heart? And then she says to me, I found this really unchurched sort of place called... Yes. yes. And I thought, What? Yeah, she said, she's on spring break right now. She's not here. That's why I know I can do that. <laughs> anyway, so I thought, oh, all right, that so fits. It's an exceptional church, exceptional pastors who are going to raise these kinds of things. So please bear with me. We're going to be nerdy. If this is your first visit to TLC, this is irregular. <laughs> just so you know, this is weird. Things will come back to normal next week, okay? So just simply bear with us. So I've been asked then to talk about how do we have this text? Um, most of us are in familiar territory when we have a question like, all right, so here's this Bible. How did this book come to us? Um, and so therefore, we have to master things we haven't mastered before. So the first thing we need to do, if we could go to my first uh, slide. This was the opening. There we are. The first thing that we need to do is actually ask ourselves, okay, so what is the biblical canon? And what we need is a little vocabulary in order to make this work well for us. So the next thing I want to do is clarify, go ahead to the next please, um, clarify that we are not talking about artillery here. 
We're not talking about biblical artillery. This is often confused, but a cannon is a measuring device. That is a Roman cannon, a replica of one. Anyway, it is a measuring device, and you can imagine that um, in the ancient world, you have to measure things. Uh, this came up really early. As soon as somebody in Egypt said, huh, I wonder if our dear son Ashkenaten has actually grown. Here, put him up against that stone wall. And they drew a line, and then they drew a line. He's grown. Let's measure him. So anyway, people really early on started to ask themselves, how can we measure? And this is what the Romans used. Mainly it's for building things, but it also can be universal. The earliest measuring device, if you really want to go nerdy on this one, is the cubit. And the cubit actually is a measurement that goes from here to your elbow. That's a cubit, okay? And that was the earliest form. The Egyptians came up with it. It went to the Greeks and the Romans did come up with it. But there's a problem with a cubit because if you have a long arm and somebody else has a short arm, you're going to come up with a different measure. They subdivided the cubit, by the way, with palms. Palm, 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 palm. You get about six of those from your elbow up. Try it. It's really interesting. It actually works. And then what they did is they subdivided that by fingers. It's really funny. You get 24 fingers from your fingertip to your elbow. What in the world? So the trouble is, if you've got really skinny fingers, it's going to go one way. If you've got fat fingers, it's going to go It becomes a sort of a moving target. But anyway, that's what they did. A cannon is a system. It actually means a rule, canon in Latin, or it means a reed actually in Greek. It is a reed because what they came up with is a way to measure. So therefore, we want to have a measuring device. Now, it quickly became a metaphor because quickly it asked, okay, so if we have a way to measure, can I measure what things belong to an authorized collection of anything? Now, let me give you an example of this. If you were to go back, say, to 1600, 1700, um, and you were to ask, all right, I'm going to be a student of Plato, so therefore, what did Plato write? Now, that means you're looking for the authorized collection of Plato, the canon of Plato. But in 1600 or so, you couldn't determine that. There were so many fake copies of Plato circulating that it became a major university search to determine what belongs in the canon of Plato and what should be thrown away. Can you see how that would go? So creating an authorized canon is a very, very big deal. Now, you and I live with this kind of thing all of the time. If you are into Jane Austen, for instance, and you would have to know what the canon of Jane Austen is. Let's see if there are any people in here. How many books do people read for Jane Austen? Got you. So it is six novels from Sense and Sensibility all the way to Emma. I looked that up. I'm not into Jane Austen. Emily Dickinson, if you want a great poet, we have figured out what is the canon of Emily Dickinson's, Dickinson's poetry. 1,800 poems. And there are Dickinson scholars who do this kind of thing. All right, let's just go down this a notch, okay? So therefore, I can say there is a Star Wars canon. Jane Austen did not work. Star Wars works. Raise your hand if you've heard of Star Wars. Oh, thank the Lord. How many movies are in the Star Wars canon? Yeah, you're all asking each other like, ah, ah, ah. six. There are six, okay? But you have a problem here. 
what do you do with Mandalorian? Do you know what Mandalorian is? Raise your hand. These are the true nerds. Yeah. Does that belong in the, in the canon of Star Wars? I don't know. What do we do about that? Let's have a roaring discussion about that. Anyway, so canon really becomes a really interesting thing. You're trying to make an authoritative list of some kind. So therefore, you and I can say we have a biblical canon, which will take us to our next slide. So our biblical canon, right. So when we talk about the biblical canon, what we're talking about is a collection of books 66 books to be precise. We have an Old Testament collection of 39 books. They are written in Hebrew and in Aramaic. All right, those are two related languages. And we know that they're organized, they've been organized from antiquity into these three categories. The law, the Torah, the history and the prophets always go together in Judaism. So 1 Samuel goes along with Jeremiah, that kind of thing. And then lastly, the wisdom literature, Psalms, Proverbs, that kind of thing. So we have 39 books, Hebrew and Aramaic. And then I have 27 books inside of the New Testament. Four Gospels, the book of Acts, 21 letters, the book of Revelation. That is our canon. And there has been consensus on that canon for a very long time. And that's what I'm going to show you today. Where does that canon come from? Just like if you were a classics major and you asked, well, okay, what's in the Plato canon? It would be really important for you to determine what goes in and what goes out. Anybody who's in Plato has got to know that kind of thing. What's the debate? We have a debate right here. Now, there were a few books that contended to get into this canon. We'll talk about that later on. But the church has always tried to work out, in conversation with synagogues, what is it we should say yes to and what is it we should say no to. I thought you would like to see this. This is the, a book the next slide has in it. Um, this is called Codex Sinaiticus. Um, this is a marvelous thing. Uh, you, everybody should just know Codex Sinaiticus. This thing was found at a monastery in, on Mount Sinai um, by a Russian scholar. It's a, it's a great story. This is the oldest complete Bible that we possess. Um, it is on vellum, which is animal skin. It is in Greek. Um, it is fabulous. It is in London today at the London Museum. And so next time you're there, make sure you go to the London Library and take a look. You can put your face on some pexiglass and be two inches from it. It is absolutely wonderful. Codex Sinaitic is probably the most valuable Bible in the world. Okay? But we have this. It comes from the 300s. Man, that is really early, and that's why it's valuable. So the question is this. How did I get from the ancient stories that come from Jesus and Paul to Codex uh, uh, Sinaiticus? How do I get there? What is the story of this, this collection? Now, this is disputed, and therefore, here, let me show you what the argument usually sounds like. You will hear people say things like this. Well, the collection of authorized biblical books was created in about A.D. 325 by the Emperor Constantine and his bishops. It was about power and control over religion. Standard argument. You'll see that in debates all of the time. And it's a debate I love to engage. Yes. Now, if you have any questions about the legitimacy of this, you should go to the authorized canonical source that every wise person goes to, and that's Twitter. So if you look inside of Twitter, here's a guy who's positively atheist. Love that. The Holy Bible, 
texts of shady origin collected by competing bishops on order of politically motivated Roman Emperor Constantine to stabilize his empire, and since then repeatedly adapted to suit the needs of contemporary rulers and clergy, but never made to comply with reality. Love it! I would love to meet that person. There's only one thing you can really say about a statement like that on Twitter. Nonsense. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It is absolute nonsense. All right, so what you and I need to do is we need to develop some tools to get at the canon the way we understand it today. So first of all, let me just give you a, sort, a list of working tools that will help you to understand, and we will use these tools when we talk about our own story, okay? Here's the next slide. First of all, here's the rule. Canons are linked to necessity. Canons are linked to necessity. Hold on to that idea first. What it means is you don't really have to have a canon unless you have an audience that doesn't really know who Jane Austen is. Then you have to say, oh, you guys, here's the list of six. Then they know what the canon is. But if there's an open consensus in the room that everybody knows, you really don't need to have a canon. You don't, it isn't necessary because it is all assumed in the community. All right. Now, so when is it that you have to come up with a canon? First of all, if you're building something. If you are building anything. If you, if you have a contractor who's building a wall in, in the ancient world, if you went up and said, oh, just make the wall about so high. How high? Well, right about to my eyebrows. Well, yeah, okay, he's six foot, the next guy's five three, and so therefore your walls are going to be going like, no, 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 no. If you're going to build something, you're going to have to have an agreement on how to measure, an agreement on how to measure. So things are going to be consistent, and therefore you can exclude stupid ideas. If you ever take a close look at the Egyptian pyramids, they're huge, they're absolutely glorious, but they are mathematically genius. The Egyptian pyramids at Giza, mathematically genius. This is where ancient geography, uh, I mean, sorry, geometry actually came from. It was not invented to torment high schoolers. Trust me on this. One time I was working in Galilee at an archaeological dig. It was a Roman thing, and, I, and, I, and so therefore the dig director was with me, and I just had finished doing a sort of a section of wall, and I said, now, can I make a projection here to see where the wall completes itself? And he says, oh, that's easy. And I said, really? He said, Pythagoras. Eleventh grade. <laughs> anyway, it was the greatest moment when Rami Arav, the chief archaeologist of Bethsaida, smoothed out the dirt in front of me and with a stick showed me Pythagoras' theorem. I said, "Dude, this is a moment to remember." And he said, "This is how you make projections when you're doing a dig." I thought, wow, really? Pythagoras was a, guess he was a cool guy, not just on a test, but he was amazing. All right, so if you're building a building, you need to have a standard to measure things. Second thing is, if you are making a translation of some kind. So therefore, if you've decided to take Plato, who's in Greek, and put Plato into Latin, what is the first thing you have to decide? What things do you translate and what things do you not translate? And so everybody has to have an agreement about what goes into Latin Plato. 
So every translation effort has to do this. They have to think about that because now you are dictating what is going into your book. Mm. So we're going to use that tool in a moment. Third thing is, if your community experiences disruption, now think about this very, very carefully. In a stable world, you don't need lists. Think about that for a moment. You and I live in a world where there are books and ways to record data all of the time. But in the ancient world, no, not the truth. So therefore, you have priests, you have scribes, you have people, you have temples that hold documents. And therefore, these scholars tend to control these lists in their minds. That's why they collect these manuscripts. So therefore, if a war comes, all stability disappears. And you begin to ask yourself, where are the elders who are going to be able to remind us what belongs in our authorized lists of readings? In northern Iraq, there is a very important monastery called the Monastery of St. Matthew, way up by the Kurdish territory up there. It was not just simply a monastery, but here in a world which was highly illiterate, Matthew, St. Matthew's Monastery was a, was, was a repository. It was a place where tens of thousands of manuscripts were saved in order that scholars living there would continue to protect what are the right things for us to be reading and studying and memorizing. Whenever northern Iraq was attacked over the centuries, armies, be it Kurds or ISIS, knew that if they took down the monastery, they could destroy the culture. See how that goes? The most recent attack was just about 25, 20 years ago, where ISIS actually went to St. Matthew's Monastery, put cannons all around it, and pummeled it. Incredible. One of the oldest monasteries in the world. The priests knew they're after the archive. So they called to the Christian villagers all around them and said, run to the monastery if you can. Come in the back way. And they all were given piles of ancient manuscripts hid them under their robes, and they ran home and they hid them. Can you believe that? So therefore, in a time of instability, you worry about losing your canon. See how that works? Fourth thing. The fourth thing is, if you happen to have disputed writings circulating all around your canon, that is going to poison your collection. It's really fine if all the scholars say, well, this is what Plato wrote. But suddenly, if you've got people importing other documents, you say to yourself, what are we going to do about this? We declare our canon. That's what happens, okay? All right, so those are the rules that we're going to use here in a moment. But let me also tell you that there are some signals for what we call an unwritten, tangible canon, all right? Let me go to this next list here. Now, sometimes you don't need a canon because there is this, what I call, binding public consensus, where books are really well known and everybody just knows what the answer is. If I said to you, for instance, here, here's a good one. What is the Harry Potter canon? Yeah, this will work. You read that in middle school, right? Cover to co Harry Potter, this little kid, magician kid. How many books? are in the canon. How many movies? Whoa, good. Which book got two films? What is it called? What is it called? 
that just sounded like speaking in tongues to me. I have no idea what you're doing. <laughs> is it Deathly Hollows? Yes, okay, there you go. See, that is a nerd right there, I just could tell. <laughs> so therefore, if somebody came along someday and said, here, I found there's another manuscript and it's another story about Harry Potter. We don't know where it came from. Newly discovered play of Shakespeare. Here's another volume from Plato. There will be an abrupt argument by people like you. And you're going to say, wait a second, there are seven. Get out of my face. We don't play around with things that are sacred like Harry Potter. Sacred to you? Yeah, that's right. You have a cross, a Harry Potter cross. Anyway, second thing that we know is we talk about intertextual citations. Now, this sounds really academic. I know it's academic. Please forgive me, but this is what we all talk about. All right, we'll do it with Harry Potter. I'm going through Harry Potter, and I discover in volume six that there is a reference to an episode in volume three. You follow what I'm doing? That's an intertextual reference. Immediately I know there's a set of stories here. So therefore the reference in chapter in book six validates that book three is in the set. See how that goes? So we have, when we have what we call intertextual references, then they cite back and forth. When Isaiah cites Deuteronomy, that's important evidence for me, very important, okay? There is a collection, therefore, at work. Third thing is that I look for are what I call quotations from other sources. In other words, imagine if I could collect up all of your texts for the last 10 years and put them in a computer. What a nightmare that would be. What if esteemed, respected writers all keep quoting from the same texts in their letters? See what I'm doing here? So in other words, in a time of fluidity, I can find out that all of you, when you want to chart your life, you always quote from Harry Potter. Bad idea. Then I suddenly say to myself, there is a thing called Harry Potter, and I can construct the canon of Harry Potter. Do you see how that works? Because I can see what everybody is quoting. There is a thing called the set of books of the Bible, and people are appealing to them as a common source of authority. So therefore, there is an unwritten but tangible collection in people's minds, okay? Here's the fourth one. These are quotations that are indirect. In other words, they are appealing to authority. In other words, what they say is, look, Romans gives you the answer to your question. Okay, I get that. So therefore, when people begin referring to a book of the Bible and saying, well, this is what it says, and therefore we should follow it, that tells me they're working with a canon. In other words, you cannot appeal to a source of authority if it doesn't exist. Oh, got it, you guys? Okay. So we're all going to use these tools here momentarily, and I think what we'll hope to do is open up this conversation. Now, here we go to the next slide. This is the craziest, nerdiest slide. This took a long time, but I, whatever. <clears throat> I even brought my archaeology pointer. <laughs> this is so funny. I only have used this pointing out rocks in Israel, <laughs> but here we are. So this is a timeline, all right? There's my timeline. Their green is, there's no zero, year zero. It is like year one. So here is the first hundred years to AD 100, back to 100 BC. You see how this works. It's pretty obvious. I took it up to AD 400. I took it back to about 200 BC, okay? So let's first talk about in our canon, 
How do we have our Hebrew scriptures? Where do these come from? First thing we need to know is that there was a constant uh, embrace, you might say, use, you could say, of the Hebrew Old Testament from 200 BC all the way back, and that has continued all the way into today inside of the synagogues. It is remarkably stable. Now, I'll demonstrate in a moment to you how we know it's remarkably stable, but hold on. Now, the first thing that happens is that in this time, the Jews had encountered Greek culture, Hellenistic culture. And therefore, many Jews quit speaking Hebrew, and they started speaking Greek. Greek was their primary language. In fact, there were so many Jews speaking Greek in this period of time, somebody said, let's do a translation. This is an incredibly important translation right here because this has a technical name, the Greek Old Testament. Does anybody know the technical name? The Septuagint, exactly. And so therefore, when the translators of the Hebrew Bible brought it into Greek, they had to ask themselves, what belongs in the canon? What belongs in the collection? What things do we leave out? What things do we bring in? Brilliant. So therefore, what this gave us is a very clear idea that Jews in this period of time had a list, and the list was a firm list. So therefore, something that was unwritten suddenly becomes visible to us. Now, how can we confirm this any further than that? Now, what happened right here, there was a, there was a Jewish community, a place called Qumran, um, and they had something called the Dead Sea Scrolls, and there was a war in AD 66, and they crammed all of their books into caves, and we have discovered the caves. Now, I know a lot of you haven't seen these before, but we have found, I mean, an incredible number of books here in the Dead Sea Scrolls from 1946 to 1949, 972 Hebrew documents out of 11 caves. This is it. Now, what is interesting about that is that here I have a community coming from this period of time, early, 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 and they are citing their Hebrew scriptures. And when they quote from these things, remember that's one of our tools, they tell us what their unspoken canon is. They quote from every book of the Old Testament except four. Man, that is a revelation of canon. Now, the other thing that I can do, I'm looking, see, I'm probing, I'm looking for ways in which Jewish literature is telling me their canon, even though there isn't something published like a list, and that is Philo. Philo lives at the same time of Paul. He lives in Alexandria, Egypt. Most of my students have never seen a copy of Philo. Here is Philo. We have this baby, and he is explaining his Jewish world to Greek readers. Now, what's fascinating about Philo is that he is talking about the, his scriptures, because he's explaining it to the Greeks. In fact, inside of Philo, I have quotes from every Old Testament book except Daniel. That means I've got a canon getting revealed. It is invisible, but it is being made clear to me. I do the very same thing with a Jewish historian. Here he is right here, Josephus, who was actually involved right after that first huge Jewish war, and it's a small miracle of history, but we have Josephus. This is Josephus, his Antiquities of the Jews, along with the Jewish Wars, massive volume, written in Greek. He retired in Rome and wrote up his memoirs. They were protected. They were saved. Incredible. So I look inside of Josephus and I discover that he names books of the Old Testament, but above all, here's what Josephus does. He gives us the number. 
he says, Jews believe that there are 22 authorized books in the Old Testament. Now, you might immediately, if you're thinking, you'll say, wait a minute, that's not very many. We have 39. What's up with that? Because the Jews collapse books. First and second Samuel for us, Samuel for them. First and second Kings, them. Ruth uh, goes into Judges. Lamentations goes into Jeremiah. So they collapse a lot of these books. But there we have it. Josephus shows us what the Jewish canon is by numbering it. He even tells us how they subdivide law, prophets, wisdom. We've got all of this. Now, why do we have this kind of conversation going on? Because of disruption. Remember I talked about the disruption of stable communities? See those two red triangles up there? Two Jewish wars. A.D. 70, the, Roman temple, the Jewish temple is destroyed by the Romans. A.D. 135, the entire country is turned from a Jewish country to a Roman province. Lots of wars. Two Jewish wars. The Jewish community, which has always held its collection, like at St. Matthew's Monastery, the Jewish community flees down to the coast, runs up to Galilee, and they put their heads together and they say, in this chaos, we need to write down what books belong to us. You lose your elders and you'd better make a list. Now, it's not only that I've got these Jewish writings, but in this same period of time, I have other literature that is written by Jews and indicating, indicating that they actually have a canon. And that's my New Testament. Yes, by the way, the New Testament comes from that same period. The New Testament cites the same books out of the Old Testament as authority. Christians are making lists coming out of the synagogues saying, okay, so what Old Testament Hebrew books are we supposed to read? There was a man in Turkey named Milito of Sardis. He traveled from Turkey to Israel in about AD 170, and he wanted to go to what he thought was the heart of Israel, and he wanted to find out, what do you Jews say are the authoritative books? And he makes a list and he brings it back with him. That's incredible that he can do that. That tells me that the list of Old Testament books that we have is basically firm in this period. Now, there are some other Jewish writings which sit alongside of these. They have a name called the Apocrypha, but they were never considered authoritative. This list, the great 22 for us 39, this list is in cement. Now, here's the next one that I want, next slide that I want to show you. Okay, so I get that. I get that the Old Testament seems to be firm, but now what about the New Testament? This is really, this is the big dog on the porch. <laughs> we, this is the one we want to go after. Because, of course, let's start from the back end. We know that in 397, at a public council or meeting called the Council of Carthage, um, the church and its bishops stood up and said, here are our books. Thank you very much. It's now authoritative, 397. Got it. So is that all we got? We invented this thing in 397? Twitter would say yes. But instead, I have a church bishop, and a father called Athanasius, who was writing a letter to someone in 367, and in Athanasius' own writings, he's got the list of our books. Okay. So it didn't take Carthage to give me my list. It, Athanasius is just simply assuming it. By the way, I just want to kill off one pigeon here real quick. 
Nicaea, the Council of Nicaea was AD 325. And these people say that that's where Constantine did it, but Nicaea didn't deal with the canon. It didn't deal with it. They're like, really? Come on, don't say that kind of thing. All right, so therefore, we can see that in the 300s, I have got my authoritative books of the New Testament locked down. The question is, what happens from here to here? That is the $50,000 question. And that where people say, well, things get really sketchy. Those are the questions. Is there a canon functioning? What do I do? The church is an underground movement. And in that period I just showed you, say in the 200s, they cannot form a public school, a major public church, no monasteries, no, no, no way, no seminaries, nothing like that. They are not an official religion of the Roman Empire. They are underground. They could not do anything until Constantine made Christianity authorized. Does anyone know the, the Edict of Milan? 313. So therefore, 313, there it is. But you and I are going to sleuth this out. By looking at the writings from this era, we can see an invisible, though tangible, canon is at work under the seam. So therefore, I can find a guy, like you see up on the screen, named Irenaeus. I look at his writings in about AD 70, and Irenaeus is arguing for the defense of what he calls our scriptures, and he says there are four gospels, and there are false gospels out there. Don't go for them. There are things like the infancy gospel of Thomas, which is circulating. I would love to go off on a tangent. It is so fun to see what those other gospels were saying. But Irenaeus cites, get this, 1,076 quotations from our New Testament. Doggone it! You see what I'm saying? Those internal quotations, suddenly you say to yourself, Irenaeus is quoting! And he's quoting the very thing you have in your New Testament, but there is no canon publicly announced. There is a canon under the surface. There's another guy who's up here. Did I put Origen up there? Yes, I did put Origen up there. Thank you. Origen, 8200. He announces that there are 14 letters of Paul. Don't go anyplace else, but stay with those 14 letters. There are four Gospels, and he quotes the entire New Testament. I mean, not the whole New Testament. He quotes from every book of the New Testament. So therefore, I have got Irenaeus and Origen sitting way back early, way before the 300s, and I know that there is a canon moving underneath. We have the earliest Christian writings outside of the New Testament would be this. We call it the Apostolic Fathers. This is the collection of letters, the earliest letters we possess that come from that period back right up to the New Testament. Many of these guys are living within the shadow of the apostles. It's amazing. AD 100, 150, we're not sure, but their writing is mirroring the teaching of the New Testament, especially the Gospels. One guy in here named Clement of Rome, AD 95, he cites 13 of our New Testament books. When I have that kind of activity going on around A.D. 100, 125, 150, I say to myself, there is a canon. It simply was not able to be made public. All right. 
So therefore, what we have is, there, how, do we, how do we look at this kind of thing? We can be confident that the canon we hold today, this collection of New Testament books that we hold today, springs from the earliest church. In fact, it isn't really until you get to the 300s, until finally the church is able to say to its public, look, this is where you want to go. So at the end of the day, this is what I hope that you will take away from all of these exercises. Scholars who look at this material in detail rarely ever say, oh, they just came up with the books of the Bible somewhere in the 300s. Nobody says that. But what we can do is look at the literature and that activity percolating in the 100s and 200s, and we say to ourselves, implicit canon, binding, authoritative, and operating for all Christians in that period of time. You can hold your New Testament and say with confidence, this is the word of God that has been preserved through time. Here's the last thing I would like to say to you, my last slide, <clears throat> is that I have one big idea, I have one worry, and I have one hope for all of you. You are in this series right now, and I hope that when you are finished with this series, that you take home one big idea. This is all, I'm gonna distill it down into something very small. We believe in a God who speaks who speaks in history and is interested in the preservation of his words so that every generation will benefit. Do you all get that? We do not believe in a God who has some ambiguous presence in the nether. We believe in a God who speaks, speaks in history and is interested in the preservation of his words so that every generation can benefit. Amen? That's the big idea, and that sets us apart in the world. There are flags planted in history, and we believe in those flags. And this is one of those divine flags. But I have a worry. The worry is, is that you are going to come away from these presentations, and you're going to say, yes, we have just elevated the Bible to a status I didn't realize before, that this is a divine act in history, and therefore this confidence you have in the Bible turns into a dogmatic or doctrinal position. Now I think I'm going to defend inerrancy or infallibility or the authority of the Bible. You know what I'm saying here? This becomes a doctrine, and the doctrine becomes a dead thing in your heart. Woe to you! If you defend the inerrancy of the Bible, but do not let it speak to your heart. That's the problem. I have known many in my career, people who defend the authority of the Bible, but whose lives are not shaped by it. It can happen to you. Don't let it. And then lastly, my hope then is this that in this series you increase your confidence in the scriptures, but also you will encounter the scriptures as something that is organic and speaking and breathing, and the Holy Spirit really does bring this into your life. That's what I hope happens. For some of you, you're going to want to go further. I have a book that I, well, not that book, 
But I um, had, yeah, there it is right there, okay? Um, this is a marvelous book. And if any of you want to go further with this subject, go after it. Scribes and Scripture, the amazing story. This is not a pop book. It's kind of intermediate, but it's going to give you the details of what I have been talking about just here. All right? We can be confident in our Bible. It's a great story. It really is. And it's nothing short of a miracle that God has given it to us over these thousands of years. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord God, we are so grateful <clears throat> that you have spoken. Your words have been kept. And we have the opportunity to hold those words and through the power of your spirit, have them speak to us again. Oh Lord, make that happen. We pray in Christ's name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.